God specifies, well, make an image of anything in the heavens, the earth, and the sea. These are the three zones, the three, the three primary zones of Israel's worldview. And, um, and he says, you're not to do this. Now, the image making, I think, qualifies by verse 5. He says, don't make an image to bow down to it or to worship it. And the, and the reason I say that well, is because we have an image hanging here now that uh, represents Jesus. This is not Jesus. And there's no attempt in this form of art. This, this is taken from a Byzantine form. Um, but it's uh, modified by tattoo art because it was a tattoo artist who did this. Um, but uh, is this okay to have this? This is an image of something in heaven and, and someone who was also on earth. Is this okay? Well, I think so, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But <clears throat> no one's going to bow down and worship this. That's a qualification. And, and the reason why I say this is because some people say no images, no pictures, you know, nothing, not even a cross. Um, it's like a wholesale rejection of anything that is brought into the church or brought into Christian worship that uh, speaks of heavenly things or earthly things, etc. Um, but again, if the qualification is to bow down and worship, then that helps us to understand why just a few chapters later, God is going to say, I want you to sculpt two angels and put them on top of the Ark of the Covenant. There's a sculpture of a heavenly being and also that heavenly being was woven into the tapestry of the tabernacle. So there are all these angels, these cherubim, um, around the tabernacle and on the curtain that separated the holy place from the holiest of holy place. Um, the, the cherubim are the protectors of the sacred, if, if we can put it that way. Remember when uh, Adam and Eve got thrown out of their apartment in Eden, and um, you know, they're out on the street now, and just to make sure that they don't try to come back you know, to steal light bulbs or whatever, um, <laughs> well, to eat of the tree of life, pardon me, um, cherubim are stationed at the entrance to the garden. So it's, it's cherubim protecting this sacred area where God has revealed his presence. And uh, it's cherubim then in God's holy tent, uh, the symbols of protection. But no one's going to bow down to them. But the art is going to speak to them. And it's going to speak to them of heavenly realities. And, uh, and God's sanctuary is a place where heaven and earth meet. And so there are going to be things that lift our spirits heavenward. And really, I mean, the best art does something like that for us. It inspires. It, it uplifts. God says, you don't want to make an idol because Yahweh, your God, is a jealous God. Here's an example of God's self Revelation. It's in the context 
of what he's telling them about their, their behavior regarding worship and regarding himself. And he says, well, you need to know this about me. So it's not like you're going to open up a book and here's a list of God's attributes and one of them is going to be jealous. We need this context to make, it, to, to make this, which otherwise may be an abstraction, more understandable to us. Oh, he, okay, he's a, he's a jealous God. Um, he tells us something about himself, but in this specific context. The word jealous is sometimes translated zealous. And I don't know if I'm, if I'm accurate in saying this, but I like to read this as, I'm a passionate God. My feelings are deep and intense. In fact, God wrestles with his own passions. Now again, this talking about God in human terms is sometimes the best that we can do. It's not entirely accurate, but it's how he expresses himself to us. He wants us to understand. So he, he, he tells Hosea, I need to write off Ephraim. That's the capital city of Israel, the, the northern tribes. And he says, I need to write them off. But I can't, because I love them. And he says, my feelings are all mixed up within me. My, my deepest feeling in my bowels, are all, it's all mixed up within me. What will I do? Well, I won't just throw you away. I'll keep trying, because I'm God, and not just a man. In other words, I can make up the rules here. I can decide for myself, and I'm not bound by anything that says that because you have broken the covenant, I have to destroy you. I can be merciful. And so he was. For a little while, then he destroyed him. But, um, <laughs> but this is why their actions matter to him. Um, he doesn't want their hearts going anywhere else. And if you know the story of Hosea, his wife's heart went somewhere else. And God said, this is what's happened to me. Um, it's important to see how he frames the contrast then that he makes. He says, I'm a jealous God, and I will uh, visit the guilt of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Um, the contrast is this, that he, he lays the sins of the father on the household, the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. So, holds them accountable for the sins of the father to the third or fourth generation of those who hate him. And there's a, an assumption that the hatred for God, or the rejection of God, goes down the family line. On the other hand, um, he lavishes mercy, that is his kindness, his, his loving kindness, the word chesed is rich in meaning, but he, he lavishes his uh, loving kindness on those who love him to thousands, to, to a thousand generations. It just goes on. So 
there's a limit to the guilt that a family has to bear and no limit to the loving mercy that people enjoy who love him. Um, guilt does have a, a shelf life, uh, and we need to understand that, but mercy has a much greater shelf life. Verse 7, um, the importance of God's name has been stressed ever since chapter 3. We talked a lot about it there, so I'm not going to talk about it here. What is it to misuse God's name, to, to say his name in vain or in emptiness? Well, uh, one thing that could be addressed here is using God's word for magical purposes, for casting spells or for conjuring spirits or, or spiritual power. Um, or another misuse is to use his name to convince people you're telling the truth when you're not telling the truth. And that will be covered again when he says, don't testify falsely. Um, but I swear to God, really, I saw a UFO. Um, uh, that could be a misuse of the name. Jesus affirms the importance of this, of, of having this respect for God's name when he taught us to pray. The first request is, um, let your name, your person, your whole being, because that's all implied in the name, let your name be revered on earth as it is in heaven. And so to revere the name of the Lord. Uh, we'll circle back to this sometime. Um, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. A Hebrew scholar by the name of Abraham Heschel, um, a brilliant man. You know, I have like a list of people. I wish I had known them in their lifetime. Uh, this particular uh, theologian and scholar for his depth of understanding of the scripture, uh, others for other reasons. But Abraham ha uh, Heschel asks, what was the first holy object in the history of the world? Was it a mountain, like Jerusalem? Was it an altar? It is indeed a unique occasion at which the distinguished word kadosh is used for the first time. How extremely significant is the fact that it is applied to time. Kadosh is the Hebrew word for holy. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So it wasn't an object at all. It was a day. It was a time. And blessed from then on. God claimed the day for himself. And, and here it says, um, the day is dedicated to Yahweh. And I, and I want to say this because it's not just a day off. We all need a day off. Um, and by the way, you know, you, you shall work six days but rest on the Sabbath. That doesn't mean you have to work six days. If you can take two days off, or if you can find a way to take Six days off and then have a Sabbath? Good for you. <laughs> you know, I, like, you know, God bless you. You're smarter than I am. Well, way smarter. Um, infinitely smarter. But uh, it, it's not just a day off. We need that. We, we need time off. But it, it's not just that. 
um, it's a, this is a difficult idea for some people to grasp. So I'll talk real slowly. <laughs> All right, um, I, I don't think that would help. Think of God. He creates everything in six days. And now he's in a state of rest. He's in a restful, God in a restful state. How do you describe that? It's a divine rest. It's, it's a holy rest. It's, it's a God-like rest. He invites his people to come and join him. It's almost like a child climbing into the hammock with grandpa. Except that it, that would ruin the grandpa's rest. Um, <laughs> faster, grandpa. Um, but he invites us to enter his divine rest. What is that? We don't know what it is to be inert. You know, our bodies are never inert. Is it amazing that you do a little bit of yard work and you're sore, your muscles are sore the next day? but your heart never stops pumping and it never gets sore from all that exertion. To, to sit down and to rest with God. Now, they wouldn't stop their normal work days for the Sabbath because we got everything done. I'm sure there are times during harvest when they hadn't brought in all of the harvest, but they did not bring it in on the Sabbath. They waited until the first day of the week. That there are times when they still needed to get some seed planted, but they did not plant it on the Sabbath. See, it's not because they got all their work done, but God had already finished the most important work, creation and salvation. And the Lord your God who rescued you from your slavery in the land of Egypt. He had saved them. When we get to the end of time, as we know it, when we're in heaven and, and God is worshipped in Revelation chapter 4, and you might want to memorize the lyrics um, you know, so you're not looking at the screens during worship, but um, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 4, God is worshipped for you have created all things. In chapter 5, Jesus is worshipped for you have saved us. So we have the creator and the savior worshipped for their gifts to humankind. And all that was complete, we're told, from the foundation of the world. And so God rests because all the important work is done. And he says, now you can rest too. And the writer of Hebrews says, Israel never entered that rest. They never knew a real Sabbath with God. Because long after Moses, the psalmist wrote, uh, God said in his wrath, you will not enter my rest, because they had hardened their hearts and did not hear his spirit speaking to them. This, this Sabbath rest is a time of disengaging with our busy world, 
disengaging with social media, disengaging with all the nonsense, and just being present to God for God. The Sabbath rest is spiritual. And then it's physiological and it's psychological. Our organs need, our body's organs need to rest in order to heal and rejuvenate. Our minds need to rest, otherwise they'll keep our bodies agitated. And I think that we need this today for wholeness more than they did in their times. And the book of Hebrews will focus on the Sabbath rest, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, will explain why Israel did not enter, and then will show us how the Sabbath rest in God can be anytime, anywhere. And that when we sit in silence with God, we really don't have to do anything. We, we do what our body normally does. We listen, we breathe, we feel, we smell, we... You know, this can be a Sabbath moment for you right now if you can just relax and be here and say... You know, I really didn't come to hear Chuck today. I came here to meet with God. And if you can make that connect, you can have a Sabbath rest right now. Your body will thank you. Your mind will thank you. And your Heavenly Father will be pleased. I think that he would rather have five minutes of us resting in him than a whole day of religious activity. Then verses 12 uh, through 16, these commandments don't require much explanation. Honor your your father and mother. That can be a tricky one, and uh, for some of us it's become problematic. You know, well, um, (laughs) I'll show respect to my mother when she earns it. Um, How can I honor a dad who abused me? Uh, There's all kinds of problems here. But... You know, um, the scriptures don't really get into those kinds of complications. I think some of us must, even if it means therapy, but scriptures don't really get into these complications. Um, When Paul says, render honor to whom honor is due and obey the authorities because God's placed them there. And that seems incredulous to us. How, how could, could God have placed a Nebuchadnezzar there over Israel or a Pharaoh or a Hitler? How could God be in charge of these, these atrocious people who have done atrocious things? But Paul said this when Nero was emperor of Rome. Uh, he probably hadn't started lighting Christians on fire uh, on poles covered in tar uh, so that they could be living torches for his courtyard when he rode his chariot back and forth. Um, but he was a bad person, a depraved person. Um, and Paul says, obey the authorities. God's placed them there for his own purposes. Um, and so my parents... They may have done a poor job of parenting, 
But that doesn't mean I have to do a poor job of being their child. In fact, if anything, I want to be a better person if my parents, you know, were not. This is a maturity challenge for some of us. Um, we are becoming whole when we accept our parents for who they are. And I, I can say, um, I love my parents, I want to honor them, and right or wrong, that was my dad and that was my mom. I went through an anger stage one day when I was in my mid to late 20s, when I was having children of my own. And I thought, how could they do that to me? It, it, it made no sense. I'd never do that to my son, to my daughter. Um, I did enough harm to my children as it was, but I didn't do that harm. And, I, and so I went to this anger stage for a while. And then I realized that I didn't like to be around my parents, mostly because I hated who I was whenever I was around them. I wasn't that same person anywhere else. I was on a pedestal in my church. I was a pastor. <laughs> Got knocked down off that. But still, um, I wasn't what my parents thought I was. I, was, I didn't fall that low. So um, we're becoming whole, though, and, and we're healing. When we get past the anger to a place of acceptance and say, I'm going to be a better parent. I'm going to be a better child. We've, <clears throat> we've read... In all the commandments so far, Yahweh, your God. Um, and that probably marks a transition between those, those, comment, those uh, commandments that are spiritual and these last commandments that are more sociological. The first ones we're dealing with God, now we're dealing with each other, beginning with family. And um, so now we have, you must not murder. Would you please remember that? Uh, commit adultery, theft is outlawed, false testimony, or perjury. All right? um, I swear to tell the truth, and then you don't. And then uh, another shift for this last one, you must not covet. Uh, and, and notice that this shift goes from the external you know, actions to the internal, to what's inside. And maybe this is where all these actions come from, the murder, the adultery, the, uh, the theft. It comes from coveting. From, from seeing your neighbor's wife and coveting her, or your neighbor's property and coveting that. You know, I want his car. Uh, which makes more sense to me than I want his donkey. Uh, I want his ox. Uh, I really don't. Uh, I cannot, I, I have to clean up after a dog. I don't have to clean up after an ox. I don't know what that means, but I don't want it. Um, but, but see, God moves inside the heart and he says, you know, I own this too. It's not just your actions. You know, I don't know how the Pharisees got the idea that their actions, you know, if their actions were religious, their hearts could go anywhere. Because that's not how it's supposed to be. Um, but, but this may be a, a link with all the other commandments by revealing where the breach begins and where we have to do, you know, some major work. In verse 18, God reminds them, when the people heard the thunder, the loud blast, the ram's horn, 
And when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they backed away and stood at a distance, trembling with fear. We've already gone over this, right? So this comes before the Big Ten, and now it comes after. And the storyteller doesn't want us to lose the context in which they received the commandments. The commandments are what came out of their encounter with God. Okay, we've met, we've had our staff meeting, and now we all have an action plan. Uh, Shovels are passed out, go out there and you know what to do. Um, Then he reminds them, you're not to make any idols. Why remind them of that right here? I don't know. Except that he just, he just wants to make sure they understand. Don't make, don't make any idols. But you can build altars. But he gives very specific instructions re, re, regarding the altars. They're either made of dirt piled up. And the Hebrew word for altar just means a raised space. Or it could be made of field stones. But he has two rules about that. Don't do any engraving on the stones and don't have steps that go up to the altar. Otherwise, your nakedness may be exposed. If you're wearing, you know, loose tunic or robe and, um, you know, there's some little adolescent boy looking up saying, I see, you know, it's like, um, don't, don't do that. Okay, what the heck? Um, <laughs> If you use a tool on the stone, you're doing what idolaters do. You are reconfiguring the stone for a cultic purpose or or a worship purpose. So don't even get close to that. Don't dress the stones. Just let them be natural as they are. And that will help to keep you away from anything close to idolatry. And don't let your nakedness be exposed. And by the way, later on in Exodus, we're going to get uh, what the priest about town is wearing these days. And uh, the fashion design for the priest is they have trousers underneath their robes. So they are covered. But the, the, I think that the point here has to do that with the fact that sexuality played big in some of the Canaanite cults where they were going. And that there were um, cultic prostitutes that would have sex with worshipers, and this would be a way of either uh, joining in union with the gods, or it would be a fertility ritual in order to get... Why are you listening more carefully now than you were the rest of the message? Okay. (laughs) So anyway, so he's protecting them. He's he's getting them away, completely away from other gods and from idols. But I know that you need a place to worship me. And so you can have these altars, but these are the rules about them. Okay, I'm glad we're through with that. Um, Two observations and then homework. Homework. Yep. Um, several of these commandments supply a reason or a motive. 
you know, honor your parents so that you'll live long in the land. There's a, there's a motive. So another reason why God gives me this commandment of no other gods, I know the motive why this commandment, but none of the commandments give me any help in obeying them. There's no energy in the commandments that meets me and says, we'll help you do this. They tell me what I must do and not do. They tell me why, and they say, here's a motive. But even the motive may not be that compelling. Though maybe for Sabbath and honoring our parents, it is compelling, but it doesn't energize us to obedience. We can know these things, know the motives and the reasons, and still not have the energy. Paul, the apostle, says this in the book of Romans. He says, the law does not change us, it just shows us where we're going wrong. The law is Newtonian physics, cause and effect. Very simple. This, then this. This, then that. So do this, and you'll get this. Do this, and you'll get that. Very simple, right? Cause and effect. And uh, uh, you've got the laws of nature, of gravity, of... Um, forces, and all of these we have to, we have to observe. If you're walking under a tree and there's a low branch, you have to duck. It's the laws of nature. If you don't, you pay the consequences. The law is Newtonian. Grace is quantum physics. And if you know anything about quantum physics, you can see, you can see that immediately. Wow, because quantum physics doesn't have to obey the laws of Isaac Newton. It has its own relationships, its own set of forces, and they're not like anything that we know of the observable universe. To get to quantum physics, you need all kinds of mathematics and technology because it, the universe of quantum physics on which our universe, or from which our universe is derived, acts very differently than our universe. And when physicists first began to see this, they said it was miraculous. Science you know, the, the, method, the scientific method, is that you can predict outcomes. You, you, you observe, you make a hypothesis about what you observe, you experiment to see if your hypothesis is correct, and it's correct if you do the same thing, you can get the same result every time. That's science. And physics thumbs its nose at that. And, and, and little electrons say, well, you can try to find me and you can use any experiment you want that works, and you'll find me, but I'll never be where you expect me. 
You'll never know where I'm going to show up until I show up. And that's baffling to the Newtonian science. What am I saying? I'm saying that grace is like that. And grace does, see, grace is the deeper reality underneath the law. You don't see it when you just look at the law. I mean, we knew Newton, you know, for, I don't know, a few hundred years before Einstein said, or Niels Bohr, or, you know, Max Planck, one of those guys said, there's something else here going on. Below the molecular, below the atomic, in this subatomic realm. And that's where grace is. It's, it's in the subatomic realm beneath the law, but can come up to us and bring the energy, God's energy, the energy of the spirit, to do what he's called upon us to do. So here's your homework. Next week, I'm going to blow through chapters 21 through 24. Read them for yourself. You're responsible to read Exodus 21 through 24 for yourself for next week. And um, if you have questions, you're welcome to email me. And if you don't have my email address, ask me afterwards. I'll give you gems. Uh, no, no, no I'll, I'll give you my email. I, be, I mean, there, there are things that will, you know, you'll wonder about this or that. Reading through Old Testament law is funny at times. It's like reading the Code of Hammurabi. It's so ancient. It deals with so many things outside our, our normal concerns. But that's, that's the first thing. And then will you at least consider this for the next 10 days, take the big 10 commandments in order and each day spend like five minutes meditating on the commands. Now, by meditating, I typically mean read it carefully, analyze it, take it one word at a time, ask questions, what, where, when, why, how, who, um, and, and open it up to understand it, you know, maybe see things you haven't seen. However, meditation like that doesn't suit all of us. So if you want, you can just contemplate it. What's contemplation? Basically, it's looking. Looking, listening. And for this, all you have to do is maybe write out the commandment and put it someplace where you'll see it and just look at it. Look at the word and see what you feel. That may not work for some, so you can write out a thought, or you can write a poem, or um, you can dance it, um, or sketch a picture. <clears throat> but spend some time with the Ten Commandments, open to God, and looking to find God's grace in them. We know that they're law. If we get, get deep down into the quantum level, we'll find grace. See if the Spirit will take you there this week. Let's stand. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.